No breakfast? No worry. It's News Brunch from Boston University. Good morning, and welcome to this first edition of the WTBU News Brunch of 2020. I'm Kendall Tamer. And I'm Sophie Eisenberg. Topping WTBU News at this hour, today is the day, finally, that New Hampshire voters go to the polls. WTBU reporter Catherine Swindles is up in the Granite State. What have you been noticing up there, Catherine? Um, so it's been a really interesting couple of days. As you can tell, I'm losing my voice even more husky than usual, so you're not getting me at my radio best, but it's been really interesting. We've um, going to a bunch of events and really talking to voters about their choice, and the thing that I've really noticed is a lot of people still undecided, still going to everything, still trying to make up their mind, um, especially between the more moderate candidates, a lot of people who are voting for, for Pete but are still considering Klobuchar, a lot of people who are voting for Biden but still considering Pete, um, which seems quite unusual maybe um, just a couple of days before. And then in comparison, when you go to the uh, to the Bernie rallies, nobody there is undecided. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some people are outwardly saying that they will really have to uh, bite their tongue to vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is if it's not Bernie. Um, so it's interesting to see uh, the difference in opinions at those kind of events. Okay, yeah, that was going to be my next question. You went to the Bernie rally last night, right? Yeah, partly. That's part of why my voice is gone. The strokes <laughs> performed at the end, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> and, and what was the mood like over there? Um, euphoric. Um, it was, um, yeah, really, really, uh, everyone was really riled up. They had um, a bunch of really interesting speakers the uh woman nina turner who um is the co-chair of the democratic national campaign who is just a very fiery speech speech um maker was really getting the crowd riled up they're really emphasizing on policy from bernie that's another thing i've really noticed that all of the um all the people hyping up bernie and all the people there to see him are you know, talking about uh, Medicare for all, they're talking about free tuition, they're talking about um, disbanding ICE. Whereas when you go to Pete and Biden events, they're talking about electability, they're talking about demeanor, they're talking about um, kind of temperament and uh, debate style and things like that. Then they're, they're more focused on those qualities rather than the ideas themselves. Even before the snafu in Iowa caucus last week, many critics have argued that Iowa and New Hampshire are not the best places to open the presidential election. Catherine has been looking into this, too. In a country increasingly diversifying, it seems strange to center so much media attention on two states which are far more white and rural than the country at large. American historian Bruce Shulman of Boston University says that since Iowa is in a swing state, candidates don't want to anger them by suggesting changing the order no sense and it certainly makes no sense for small unrepresentative states to, to be to get so much more you know influence uh, in this presidential selection process than states that are larger that also have populations and electorates that better reflect the United States as a whole so it makes no sense at all. However, it is strongly in the interests of Iowa and New Hampshire 
to preserve it. But speaking to voters, they say that they have huge pride at being the first in the nation primary and their importance in national elections. Colin Booth, a New Hampshire resident who is working on Tom Steyer's campaign, says it gives New Hampshire voters a big responsibility. But also, I think it's really great for them. You know, you hear about um, just having a very different experience than seeing, you know, reading about the candidates or seeing them in the newspaper, uh, seeing them on TV. It's a very different experience, and I think it helps people make up their minds. I think it really helps people uh, get in touch with the candidates. It could come down to who wins the presidency. If a candidate who didn't do well in Iowa and New Hampshire wins, there may be change. But if Sanders or Buttigieg, who benefited from the current system, win, it will likely stay the same. Either way, voters in these two states are going to have to wait a while to find out if they can hold on to their first-in-the-nation titles. For WTBU News, I'm Catherine Swindles in Manchester, New Hampshire. The Democrats aren't the only ones on the ballot in New Hampshire today. President Trump faces a few opponents, including former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. But the president is not worried about the Republican competition and is targeting his aim at the Democrats. At a rally in Manchester last night, President Trump made the case for why he should be reelected. While the extreme left has been wasting America's time with this vile hoax, we've been killing terrorists, creating jobs, raising wages, enacting fair trade deals, securing our borders, and lifting up citizens of every race, color, religion, and creed. Three tiny towns in New Hampshire have already voted, and President Trump got 31 votes, Bill Weld five, and two other candidates each got one vote apiece. Meanwhile, Donald Trump's associates are facing prison time. Prosecutors have recommended Roger Stone be sentenced to seven to nine years in prison for charges related to lying and witness tampering. Stone was convicted of these charges last November after being indicted by special counselor Robert Mueller. Climate change has finally made it to the big leagues this election season, with polling showing it has now become a top issue for Democratic voters. But how big of an effect is this likely to have on the candidates' campaigns? Climate change was on the rise in 2019, with more record-breaking temperatures and natural disasters pushing the issue to the forefront of many voters' minds. A recent study from the Pew Research Center shows 9 out of 10 Democratic voters agreeing that climate change is a moderately big or very big problem for the country. And just last week in Iowa, the issue came in second only to health care at entrance polls. So why hasn't it become a more central issue in the presidential campaign? Janet Moffett plans to vote in the March 3rd Democratic primary here in Massachusetts, but she hasn't decided who she'll vote for yet. Climate change is big. Beating Trump is huge. Moffett says that while climate change is one of her top priorities, she could never choose a candidate based solely on their policy proposals because choosing someone who can defeat President Trump is just too important. And according to a recent Gallup poll, about 6 in 10 Democratic voters agree with her, saying they would rather see the party nominate the candidate with the best chance of defeating Trump, even if that person doesn't share their views on key issues. But that doesn't mean candidates should feel free to write off climate change entirely. If there were a Democratic candidate who did not think we needed to tackle it, that would be a definite no. The death toll for the coronavirus now outnumbers even SARS. As hospitals in China fill up, the disease is appearing worldwide, with up to 12 confirmed cases in the United States, including right here in Boston, and fear is beginning to set in. 
But public health officials say that despite the World Health Organization declaring a global health emergency, the fear may not be warranted. People are making their way down Commonwealth Avenue wearing masks and taking extra precautions in a time of heightened fear over the mysterious coronavirus. However, Dr. Brian Labus, an assistant professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, says the fear is outweighing the facts. Right now, there's no risk. Unless you are somebody that traveled to those areas, you're not exposed to the virus. So we don't see it circulating anywhere in the United States. And if it's not circulating, you're not going to be at risk of being exposed to it. Labus says that we're more at risk of influenza than we are of coronavirus here in the United States. On average, we have about 30,000 people die every year from influenza in the United States. Right now, this is the time of year when flu is circulating, people are being infected, and people are still dying from flu, yet nobody pays attention to that because it's something we're used to dealing with every single year, and it's not as scary to people despite the risk being much, much higher. Dr. Labus also recommended that we do our best to get our flu shots, stay home if we're sick, and just be conscious of the low risk in order to try and put our minds at ease. There's a little silver lining to all the worry about the coronavirus. Boston Symphony Orchestra is holding a series of free pop-up concerts this week, and WTBU reporter Frank Hernandez says it's all thanks to the deadly virus. The Boston Symphony Orchestra held the first in a series of pop-up concerts on Sunday at the Lindy Center at Tanglewood and Lenox. The shows are in response to the orchestra's cancellation of its East Asia tour due to concerns of the coronavirus in the region. But BSO Director of Education Leslie Wu Fali says there's more to them than that. We decided that as much as we love bringing our, our music to a global audience, that we actually don't have to travel halfway across the world to be able to celebrate the cultures that that we'd be visiting. The pop-up concerts are happening all week and will feature a smaller group of the orchestral ensemble. The concerts will happen at hospitals, homeless shelters, and schools. I think hospitals, homeless shelters, and schools, their missions are all obviously very critical to the health and vitality of Boston, so this is just our way of sharing our music and recognizing the great work they do every day. These small pop-up concerts will culminate in a full orchestral concert at the Boston Symphony Hall on Sunday. For WTBU News in Boston, I'm Frank Hernandez. And one of those pop-up concerts will happen Thursday morning at Angel Memorial Animal Hospital for all the dogs, cats, and a few humans who work there. We'll be right back. Here's more from BSO performing Vivaldi's Four Seasons. A bill allowing immigrants to get driver's licenses is moving forward in the Massachusetts legislature after making it past the first hurdles. WTBU's Hannah Harn says the new policy is also expected to improve public safety. Advocacy groups across the state have been pushing for a driver's license bill for more than 10 years. The Work and Family Mobility Act is the first to pass the House Transportation Committee. Representative Christine Barber, who co-authored the bill, says that this will not only support immigrants' growth, but will also contribute to public safety. It actually makes all of us on the road safer because it means that 
more people on the road actually have insurance and are trained to drive. And what we've seen in some other states is that when they passed this law, it actually dramatically cut down on the number of hit and run accidents um, because more people had licenses and insurance. So I think the safety for all of us is a really important part of this bill that maybe doesn't always um, get talked about. While the bill has passed its first major hurdle, it has a long way to go before becoming a set law in Massachusetts. However, state compliance with the Real ID Act, which sets out minimum security standards for licenses and IDs, may make it easier to provide more basic Massachusetts licenses, regardless of legal residency status. We have a two-tiered system, and it actually makes it pretty easy to do this and add immigrants to this um, current system. For WTBU News, I'm Hannah Harn. The Trump administration is proposing a new rule that would eliminate the duration of the status component for students and exchange visitors studying in the U.S. and replace it with a maximum period of stay. That might sound like bureaucratic gobbledygook, but as WTBU reporter Emily Wilson tells us, the new rule would make it much harder for international students to come to the U.S. for extended periods of time. Eliminating the duration of status rule would require students to apply to extend their visas far in advance, which is tough for students who decide later that they'd like to stay longer for their studies. According to a Forbes magazine estimate, international students could be paying $1,500 or more every time they apply for an extension. Maria Adkins, director of international student services at LaSalle University, is opposed to this potential rule. I think that would be really hard for international students. Um, to if I guess if the proposal is proposing to put a stamp with an actual date in their passport, because um, students now, they can stay as long as their I-20 is valid. So if they need a program extension, they can just come to our office. Adkins estimates that 20% of LaSalle University students would be affected by the rule, as well as the staff that supports them. If the proposed rule becomes set, processes will become more extensive, Boston University international student Muskan Sharma from Dubai shares her thoughts. I mean, I think it's already difficult enough to go through all of that, to come here and study here, and I don't see any point in getting additional approvals. There's clearly already a substantial process for international students studying in America, so to add to it may deter some students from studying here. For WTBU in Boston, I'm Emily Wilson. University of Massachusetts Boston has a new chancellor. The Board of Trustees unanimously appointed Marcelo Suarez Orozco as his new leader yesterday afternoon. He will be UMass Boston's first permanent chancellor since 2017. He is also an immigrant from Argentina and the university's first Latino chancellor, a significant step for UMass. Professor Lorna Rivera, faculty member of Latino Studies program, says Suarez Orozco will better represent the student body. I think that unlike previous chancellors, that hopefully uh, he will have, you know, some of uh, this deeper connection to the experiences that many of our students have, you know, working while they're going to school, uh, you know, struggling as first-generation students, many of them. It's really um, just uh, a validation for uh, representation on our campus. Suarez Orozco is currently Dean of Graduate Education and Information Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, but is scheduled to move to UMass officially in July. 
Boston's first retail marijuana dispensary will open next month, more than a year after the first shops open elsewhere in Massachusetts. WTBU's Hannah Harn says that this milestone also marks progress in encouraging some people to get into an industry that previously shut them out. Nearly three years ago, Massachusetts passed the first bill to explicitly encourage those disproportionately penalized by now-defunct marijuana laws to become part of the future pot industry. Now, Boston is preparing for its first retail marijuana store, Pure Oasis, which will also be Massachusetts' first minority-owned dispensary. Stephen Hoffman, the chairman of the Cannabis Control Commission, sees the new license approval as a big step in changing the demographics of the industry. This is really important to us. The, uh, the law is very explicit about us ensuring that people that live in communities that were harmed by marijuana prohibition are full participants in the industry. We are totally committed to that outcome, and I actually am very confident we're going to get there. Um, it, it takes a while, and as I said, at least one of the gating factors is the cities and towns have to issue those community agreements. The Cannabis Control Commission says that Massachusetts' marijuana workforce is currently 75 percent white, while less than 12 percent represent the black and Latino communities. Pure Oasis, which is set to open in Dorchester, received final license approval on Thursday and will be the 36th active recreational marijuana dispensary in Massachusetts. For WTBU News, I'm Hannah Harn. Rhode Islanders could see state-run marijuana shops in the near future as part of Governor Gina Raimondo's annual budget plan. The state introduced a medical dispensary system in October 2016, but has yet to fully legalize marijuana. Governor Raimondo's proposal would create a statewide network of recreational marijuana shops. If passed, Rhode Island would be the first state in the country with government-run recreational marijuana. Students at Boston University are honoring Black History Month in their new and improved Howard Thurman Center for Common Ground. WTBU reporter Ina Joseph takes us on a tour. The Howard Thurman Center is teeming with conversations about race, culture, and the people who helped shape these conversations, like the center's namesake, civil rights activist Howard Thurman. The center reopened in its new location at 808 Commonwealth Avenue last month. According to Dean of Students Kenneth Elmore, the dialogue happening in the new HCC provides the perfect celebration of Black History Month. So, you know, Black History Month, I hope, is not only a celebration of uh, history in and of itself, but I hope it's a celebration of uh, those folks who push forward the conversation, push forward the dialogue, push forward the argument, and advanced it by doing that. And, uh, and so I think that when you get a dialogue-based inclusion center, because that's what I think this is, this is the space for those conversations about identity, culture, race, the works. Mm-hmm. happens here. That's our brand. HCC student ambassador Ronnie Nee Clark agrees that the opening of the center this month means the world and upholding Howard Thurman's legacy. And if you know the history of the Howard Thurman Center for Common Ground, you would know that Howard Thurman himself wanted a center in a space just like how we were able to at the HCC provide for the students. So in it being open and right in time for Black History Month is so, 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 so important of carrying on the Howard Thurman legacy and the legacy of having a space for people to come in and create and share meaningful experiences. Students can look forward to more discussion-based events at the Howard Thurman Center in the coming months to keep the conversational spirit of Black History Month alive year-round. For WTBU in Boston, I'm Mina Joseph. We'll be right back after this from Stevie Wonder. Ha! 
If you live in Cambridge, cutting a tree in your own front yard will continue to be a hassle. WTBU reporter Frank Hernandez says it's because Cambridge wants to stay green. The city of Cambridge has passed an, express, an extension of its temporary and controversial ban on private property tree cutting. The city council first passed this ban in 2019, after city researchers found that in the past decade, 72% of canopy loss in the city happened on the private property. Now the ban will go until December 20th. Cambridge residents that want to remove a tree from their property will have to apply for a special permit. Even then, only trees that are deceased, dead, or dangerous to public safety will be considered, calling in question private property rights. Alongside the renewal of the ban, Cambridge also approved $1.2 million in funding for the city's tree canopy. Over a thousand new street trees will be planted in Cambridge this year alone. For WTV News in Boston, I'm Frank Hernandez. People along the Housatonic River are looking forward to finally getting it cleaned up after General Electric agreed yesterday to aid in the removal of toxic sediment from PCB dumping. According to Jane Wynn, the executive director of the Berkshire Environmental Action Team, this has been an ongoing battle. The new agreement will lead to direct removal of sediment through hydraulic dredging and also demolition of two no longer functioning dams on the river. GE has agreed to clean up about 100 acres more, remediating it, instead of in places they were just going to cap the river, meaning basically putting down textile and sand over part of a really dynamic river system, and we didn't feel that was appropriate. They're still allowed some capping, but much, much less than in the 2016 plan. Despite the new agreement, there is still work to be done. Along with the river itself, 400 acres of soil along the river are also contaminated. Beat hopes that in the future, they can work to restore this as well. But Wynn says it won't be easy. Well, they're cleaning up some of the soil, but not all of it. And PCBs basically last forever. So even though this is low levels in the other areas, there's still a lot of contamination left. Ideally, we'd like to see, well, and as part of this agreement, EPA will be looking at alternative technologies if one is developed that actually will be able to clean up the PCBs in situ or in place, we would certainly hope that eventually GE will be coming back and restoring the entire floodplain to remove the PCBs. The town of Duxbury is set to receive over $8 million to cover the cost of damages from a devastating storm that took place almost two years ago. On March 2nd and 3rd of 2018, more than 400,000 people across the state lost power as towns along the Massachusetts coast were hit hard by the nor'easter. In Duxbury, several parts of the seawall were breached, which led to massive flooding up to four feet on the streets. Here's town manager Renee Reed describing the conditions back then. What you see here behind me is a uh, seawall system which is actually in crisis and is in the process of failing. Uh, over the last 48 to 72 hours, we've witnessed large portions of our seawall fall into the Atlantic Ocean. 
The town will be using the funds, which come largely from FEMA, to help offset the cost of rebuilding the sections of seawall that were destroyed during the storm. And we'll be right back with more of the WTBU News Brunch. Stay with us. Boston University Terriers' quest for their 31st Beanpot Championship came to a heartbreaking end last night at the hands of the Northeastern Huskies after a game that was a roller coaster of emotions. WTBUR sports reporter Dave Johnian is here with the sob story. That's right, Kendall. It was a heartbreaker. After erasing a two-goal lead to defeat the Boston College Eagles in the semifinal, the Terriers scored two goals in the first period on strikes by Jake Wise and Trevor Zegris to make it 2-0 Terriers. The Huskies responded by scoring four unanswered goals in the second. BU head coach Albie O'Connell decided he had seen enough and sent in Sam Tucker to replace freshman goalie Ashton Abel in the crease. After a power play goal by David Ferrance cut the lead to one, Zegris tied it with just 1.5 seconds remaining in regulation. However, in double overtime, Huskies defenseman Jordan Harris ripped home a wrist shot with 46 seconds on the power play to give the Huskies the victory before 17,850 fans at TD Garden. The game was not without controversy. After the game, Coach O'Connell voiced his displeasure over penalty calls when speaking with the media. The win gives the Huskies their third consecutive beanpot crown, but hope springs eternal. Tonight, the Lady Terriers take on Northeastern at Walter Brown Arena. Let's hope they have better luck. Thanks, Dave. And that will do it for this edition of WTBU News Brunch. Thanks for listening. I'm Kendall Tamer. And I'm Sophie Eisenberg. Stay tuned to WTBU for all your news, sports, and music. We leave you now with something to inspire the women's hockey team tonight. Take it away, Queen. <laughs>